Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 73, recorded on June 20th of 2019. And uh, we geek out about photo stuff on a weekly basis, you know, stuff from the news cycle. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka. And uh, with me, I think, is my MVP, if if Photo Geek Weekly ever did have one. Uh, Steve Brazel rejoins as a guest host again this week. Steve, how are you doing? It's been a while. I'm very good, and you are way too kind, sir. I, I get a lot of requests for you, actually. If you're not on for a couple of episodes, people start asking, where's Steve? Well, I, I appreciate to everybody that, that reaches out to Don. Thank you very much. Checks in the mail. <laughs> there we go. Um, so uh, what's uh, what's new and exciting with you, Steve? I know that you uh, uh, your day job is uh, probably uninteresting uh, from a podcast discussion standpoint, but you, you shoot concerts and everything in your off time. So have you shot anything interesting lately? Uh, I have. I have uh, shot Corey Taylor of Slipknot and Stone Sour fame. Uh, he has a tour where it's Corey Taylor and friends. That was a great show. But then tonight, as soon as we're done with this, actually, I'm going to quickly mow my lawn here in Southern California and run down to, to photograph the Doobie Brothers and Santana. Oh, lovely. And Santana's always been a bucket list artist for me to photograph. So I heard they have a pretty good stage presence. Yeah, he's got a lot of colorful lights and it, I mean, his lighting is great. The Doobie Brothers, it's a soundboard shoot, so I'll be pretty far away. But Santana... <clears throat> is going to be from the photo pit. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. And I need to say to you, because you're not self-serving in any way, so I need to say it, otherwise nobody will hear it. Congratulations on the success so far of of your Kickstarter campaign for your book. I ordered one. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. And I can't wait to get that in your hands. Uh, I mean, my timeline is still for Christmas of this year to have all the physical copies shipped out and the eBooks, uh, you know, digitally delivered around that same time. And and it's still open, right? People can still go. Oh, yeah. Uh, we still have 24 days left in this campaign. And so if you want a copy of a 352 page uh, macro photography Bible, uh, then this is exactly it. It's partly instructional, uh, you know, in, in the sense of how I can create the shots, but it covers all the theory, all the practicality, the editing workflow, uh, everything that you could imagine uh, to basically cover any facet of macro photography. So even crazy down the rabbit hole stuff like 3D or ultraviolet or heck, even x-ray stuff. Uh, we will go there because I've got 352 pages to fill. That's good. And it's going to be a good book. So if you have not gotten one yet, go get one. And and I just had to do that because I'm excited about your book. <laughs> And I think at, at, right now we're at uh, 95,000 Canadians. So we have far surpassed uh, our initial estimates and I just couldn't be happier. I actually did a search earlier today to see if there was any uh, instructional photography books on Kickstarter that had uh, reached this amount of funding and I couldn't find any. There's a couple of art books, uh, but we might be the highest funded uh, instructional book on uh, on photography. So Congratulations, uh, man. I'm I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and right off the top, I also wanted to uh, to kind of go back to an episode. Uh, I forget how many episodes ago this was. It was it was recent uh, where Mike Howard was my guest. And one of the stories that we had covered um, was a raw compression uh, tool called Dot Photon. 
And uh, admittedly, we were a little bit skeptical about the software. Uh, and Mike and I are both Windows users, so we didn't have the ability to uh, to get hands-on with it and put things through a proper test. Uh, the guys at Dot Photon reached out to me and uh, described in depth um, the kind of stuff that they are doing. And uh, I have even more questions now. It's it, it's actually a, a more powerful piece of software than I had originally anticipated. So I I might have to eat my words a little bit on on how skeptical I was. It might be worth checking out. But I'm going to dive in even deeper, and uh, I would like, and I've uh, reached out to them to see if, if they'd be willing to have them on an episode of Inside the Lens when I relaunch that podcast, hopefully within a month. So, Well, um, and I will say, because you showed me the email you got from them, and, uh, and when I first looked at it, I thought, who does this? He went point by point by point with a full paragraph answer to probably 20 different points that you had. And I would like to publish even that because I have never had a company come back with such detail and such transparency, just complete clarity, complete truth, telling everything as it is. And I have admiration and respect for companies that do that. And and I'll add this. He could have been, and many would have been, he could have been more on the defensive end, right? Like you guys said this and I want to, you know, he could have been a little bit more aggressive. He was super open. Very explanatory, you know, and his word choice was great. I mean, it was it was a really interesting email. So we're going to revisit that and uh, I'm going to send them some files to convert to uh, uh, to their DNG format so that uh, I can, you know, peek into them and compare to the original raw files myself, because once they're converted to a DNG format, uh, I'd be able to view them through any regular DNG, uh, you know, any any program that would be able to read that. And so that's pretty much every raw editor out there uh, on the market today. And uh, I'll do a couple of comparisons with Photoshop and with On One, and uh, see how when I really push the limits on some very uh, edge case kind of uh, you know, raw files, like the white balance being completely uh, uh, knocked away or something that is uh, just drastically and stupidly underexposed, more as a test image than anything else, not even what I would normally encounter in a real world scenario. But uh, I'll put it through the paces and I'll give it another uh, another check. So that's not a story that we're really covering this week in the news cycle, but I thought I'd mention it. Off and the and I'm, a, I'm actually curious, do you use DN, do you convert to DNG as part of your workflow or do you leave the default manufacturer raw? I leave the just the raw file format okay. because if you look back even to the the very beginnings of when raw file format started to exist, uh, every one of them back to those days of antiquity are still supported by every raw processor on the market today. Uh, and even if for some reason they wouldn't be, uh, Adobe has their DNG profile uh, or DNG uh, converter as a free standalone piece of software. And I could get an older version of that if newer ones stop supporting it. So only when the writing is on the wall about support ending for certain files would I be proactive uh, or rather reactive about uh, converting those over. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into our stories uh, for the week. The first one is uh, something that was uh, actually uh, tweeted to me that I you know should take a look at. Uh, thank you uh, to uh, Jeff Harmon for that. Uh, This is on DP Review. Adobe Research and UC Berkeley uh, create AI that can find and undo portrait manipulations. Uh, 
This is really cool stuff. So um, I've been waiting for, uh, you know, practical uses for artificial intelligence outside of uh, smartphone technology, because that's laden with it everywhere. Uh, So aside from making images better and prettier, I love the fact that we can now take a look at a, a photo of somebody's face, and it will highlight the areas that it thinks has been manipulated, and to what degree. And, and this was shocking to me, uh, it has some presumptive ability to undo the changes that it thinks were made. Uh, Steve, I know you've, uh, you've probably watched the video on this, and it's, it's rather dry. It's more of a tech demo presentation uh, than, uh, than anything, but it was really um, groundbreaking, I guess would be the best word. Yeah, and there were a couple things that really stuck out to this one on me. One of the researchers that that is part of this project, Richard Zhang, uh, he actually used the phrase "a universal undo," because this AI, this this neural engine that they use, the uh, convolutional neural network, it not only has the ability. And by the way, we should specify it's specifically trained on images that were using the Face Aware Liquify in Photoshop. So yep. this isn't like any photo that you do anywhere necessarily. The, the testing right now is using Face Aware Liquify. And so what but, they did uh, to, to, to interject quickly is that they would take an original image and then they would modify it in some way and then feed the algorithm what they had modified in the image and what the output was. So it would be able to put the puzzle pieces together and then work backwards from there. Well, they would give it the original image and the end result. But what was fascinating to me was it could not only pinpoint those areas in the image that were modified, but it could also decipher the methods that were used to modify them. That's the key to that universal undo concept to me is it knows it not just knows you messed with it. It knows exactly how you messed with it so that it can reverse it. Now, they're not saying it can reverse it completely to original. They're saying it can calculate how best to reverse it close to and the it does original. a pretty good job it doesn't get exactly to the original but it lets you see a, a representation of what it should look like did you were you surprised by the percentage of people when they so they did a test they they took these modified images and they had humans look at the modified images and try and identify which ones were modified you know and and how and, they and were it's, modified it, the humans uh, that were uh, you know uh, if I could speak, essentially guessing um, that it was 55% or 53%? 53% of the, yeah. 53% of humans presented manipulated images could properly identify that it was a manipulated image. But their algorithm detected modified images 99.5% of the time, uh, almost statistically every time. Think about so, that. I mean, really honestly, sit on that for a minute, right? We talk about... And I know we're going to get into the the contest applications for this, the media marketing and Photoshop, you know, people on, on magazine covers. There's that, that aspect to it. But even with all the complaints that we see too much Photoshop work or we don't know when there's Photoshop work, we can identify it. But this got 99%. Now... That is within its parameters, right? And it probably has fairly narrow parameters right now. Um, But if you've ever pushed the Liquify tool too far, you'll notice that it really stretches pixels to a point where you can notice them with your own eye. It smudges. Um, 
And I'm sure that before that point, a computer can detect that these pixels have been pushed, especially if there's uh, a consistent noise profile across the image. That could be one of the metrics that they're using to detect exactly how things have been modified. I'm not sure. uh, I haven't actually read a research paper on this. We're we're just kind of going based on the news story. But if that's the case, if you're detecting a, a noise pattern, then you could conceivably uh, detect any breaks in that noise pattern, which would tell you where things have been cloned or where uh, things have been composited together. So there's a lot of real world applications for this. Uh, but you mentioned like uh, magazine covers and uh, and you know uh, fashion magazines, anything that's included in any any of those publications. What would happen if you were to get a digital copy of one of those magazines and let this algorithm go to town on it? I mean, any editor that has, you know, uh, tucked in a little bit of fat here and there using that liquify tool, uh, again, assuming that it stretches beyond just facial expressions and onto, you know, other body parts and what have you, which I don't see why it couldn't, then you would get people basically caught with their hand in the cookie jar every single time. Well, first of all, I... I'm positive that they've just for fun gone, let's let's grab a digital copy of a magazine cover and try it, right? A model shot and try it. I'm sure they've tried it. In the test, and, and let's be aware, this is only a study at this point, right? In the study, they're very specific that it detects edits to human faces, right? That Their, their wording in this is extremely specific in what they're, they're doing. But you brought up an interesting point, and that is, You use the term noise as talking about digital manipulation, but let's extrapolate that. This could be the groundwork for future noise reduction in images. Yeah, it could be. Because it will be able to detect those things that are not intrinsically part of what was in the photograph. But what if, uh, just as par for the course of, um, uh, say, if you're running a photo contest, to have uh, an AI algorithm that detects image manipulation, especially to an extreme degree, um, if you are uh, at a press desk and you run every image uh, through uh, through that just to make sure that people's expressions haven't been changed for AP. photojournalistic purposes. Exactly. Um, or if you're National Geographic and you want to make sure that things haven't been mucked with because they've been caught red-handed a number of times or maybe oblivious to the fact that things have been edited contest organizers and so many other areas will keep uh, the images that we see honest. And those people disseminating content to us as content uh, consumers, not just photographers, but the stuff that we see and enjoy, uh, if we could put some checks and balances within that, uh, yeah, more please. Yeah, I agree. And and we should point out, this is a, it's a research project that's a joint project between Adobe Research, a division of Adobe, their research division, and UC Berkeley, but it's sponsored by a program within DARPA. Now, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. DARPA is effectively the, orig- the, the origin of the internet, uh, not as we know it today, but as a structural infrastructure type sy- system. They fund this program to try and, and reinforce image integrity. And what was fascinating to me in the article was and fascinating is the wrong word. It was refreshing to me to see Adobe actually say that we love creating this tech, like, you know, FaceAware Liquify. We love, you know, coming up with these new photo manipulation technologies. However, we recognize the ethical implications of that tech. And that was really refreshing to me. 
And, you know, it's funny because I edit images quite extensively uh, and I do uh, cloning. I've I've even used the liquify tool to bend the stem of a flower into a slight arc because it's a little bit more pleasing than having it completely straight. Um <gasps> Oh, shocking. I know. <laughs> Sorry. I, I could have easily done that by just bending the flower in person, too. Um, and I've even like wrapped a daffodil petal around a pencil to get it to curl nicely for a water droplet image. And then, you know, after an hour or so, it stayed in a semi-curled state. Uh, so whether you're doing that afterwards or you're doing it uh, in camera, I mean, if it's art and you're just doing little modifications here and there, I don't see anything wrong with it. But uh, you would find... Anybody that seriously and extensively edits their photographs to be called out on it. I mean, uh, look what happened with Steve McCurry uh, when a lot of his images were found to have, uh, I don't want to say completely subject altering edits, but they kind of go against the ethics of photojournalism. So uh, keeping those people in check. And I know Steve McCurry says now that he's he's more of a visual storyteller, not a photojournalist, and he's trying to justify all of these things. That's a discussion for another time. Um, But at least we would be aware of those kinds of edits for anything that we look at. And and on that vein, it's important also to note that during, during the data set that they assembled for the AI to be trained on, if you only used... Okay, so there's a couple of ways that you can manipulate an image. One of those could be automated, scripted image manipulations that you then feed in. Here, they did both. They did scripted manipulations, but they also did human artist manipulations because they wanted the the AI and the neural network to be able to distinguish and find the modifications, whether they were done through some non-human means or human means. That's actually to me, that was, that was smart. And this is, uh, this is the beginning of, of this type of stuff, right? I mean, we've been talking about deep learning and artificial intelligence for years. Um, now it's finding more and more practical uses because it's getting more and more powerful. Uh, and we have more money, more research, more hardware, uh, going behind it. That's, uh, you know, kind of increasing these capabilities. It's really exciting to see where this is going to be in say five years from now in tools that, uh, me and you as end consumers can start, um, basically reassuring ourselves that what we see is true. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll keep our finger on the pulse of this one as we do. Uh, But let's move on to the next story. Uh, This is from Petapixel. That's actually a a, a video from Canon that describes why their RF system is better than the EF system. And I think we had a a brief discussion on Twitter about this as well, Steve, which is one of the reasons why I added this to the show rundown. That's basically titled Canon. Here's why RF lenses can be better. And that's a key phrase, can be better than EF lenses. Uh, Did you give this video a watch? Yes, I gave the video a watch and there's a number of different things. And actually, I think I found this video on my own. And then I think it's another one also that Jeff Harmon had tweeted out too. Um, The video is actually really fascinating because while I had heard of some of the, the design choices for the RF mount and the RF lenses and why they would be better, seeing Canon put it to 3D visuals was actually very enlightening and very educating, understanding, you know, I don't go that deep to understanding when and where in a lens and based on element distance from either the sensor surface or other elements, how that particular lens is bending or stretching or compressing light. It's fascinating to see that. 
And actually, in in their video, there's a couple of things where they're actually showing light rays passing through a lens, but not actually doing anything. Uh, They some of them are a little bit more accurate in their depiction. So take it with a grain of salt. Exactly how it's showing you what's happening. Very true. But but they're trying to you know obviously it's a marketing tool, right? So they're but they're trying to emphasize and accentuate those changes that can happen. But there were two things that I took away from this video. (laughs) Number one is. I thought for a second Johnny Ive was working for Canon suddenly because for some reason, whenever you have this type of, of introductory marketing piece, it's a it's a slow Johnny Ive type narration, which is kind of well, You kind have of to funny. understand, Steve, if you talk like this, you sound a lot more educated. Oh, my. I, I mean, seriously, I, I, I was <laughs> cracking up there for a little bit. But the other thing that struck me was while this video was made by Canon, And while this video is extolling the benefits of the RF design, both mount and lens, much of what this video describes isn't canon. Much of what this video describes is purely, as we know it today, the mirrorless environment that's been created. Right. And so it basically they're uh, saying that the, the benefit here is a shorter flange distance. And the shorter, the better in some cases, uh, not in all, though, mind you, because they they illustrate a lot of lenses that have complex optical formulas that are typically wide or normal lenses. And these would be the lenses that have the rear element very close to the lens mount itself. And so uh, wide angle lenses are the ideal scenario here. And you've got some very complex and exotic optical designs that have been created over the past few years uh, and very expensive lenses that these designs have gone into to try and overcome corner softness in certain cases, especially at the extremes. Just look at the Canon, what is it? The uh, 11 to 24, something like that. Right. I, I can't remember the exact F4, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, F4, that, that's a very exotic and fairly pricey lens because they had to overcome the uh, the challenge of having that rear element farther away from the sensor than they would like. However, if you look at a telephoto lens, if you look inside the rear part of the telephoto lens where it connects to the camera, there's no element there. I mean, it's further up into the barrel of the into lens. The body, yeah. So having a shorter or longer flange distance will have absolutely no benefit in that particular case. Now, if you've got a teleconverter that's attached to that, well, you've got the optics again much closer to where that lens mount is, and you could possibly have an advantage there too. Well, and again, it all depends on each individual lens and that lens design. So if for some reason that telephoto lens was specifically designed as an RF lens, you know, one of the reasons that the large telephoto lenses and any lens is designed the way that it is, is to compensate actually for, in, let's go with the standard EF mount. The reason you have such a large front element and such a large lens to begin with is to compensate and to shape that light so that it comes through that last final element exactly the way that you need it to hit that sensor. Any lens that you're designing for the RF mount or mirrorless mounts, you have the ability now to redesign the entire front of the lens too, to again, try and shape the light. But what was interesting, and and I think a lot of people are going to misunderstand when they read it, they're not saying that an RF mount, because you are closer to the sensor, has less aberrations. They're saying it's easier for them to correct the aberrations. That's right. right. They're not saying they're gone. They're saying that if your if your rear element is too far away from the sensor, 
it's harder for them to make internal corrections in software to that aberration. If it's closer, a shorter back focus, then those corrections are easier for them to do. So this basically gives us two scenarios moving forward. One, where you have the same amount of engineering passion, muscle, and expense into a lens um, that will yield better results because it's easier to do things. Um, Or on the other hand, you can get the same results as we've had already with a cheaper, less expensive lens because, again, it's easier to do things. So, Oh, that's actually uh, a really good point. I never thought about that. But so we, I, I have we you only seen benefit pictures, by the way, from from a, a, a Canon R. Yeah, well, I actually, I, uh, I have a, an EOS R sort of right here, so I've been playing with things like that on occasion. But um, this is actually a customer's of mine that's loaned it to me to clean the camera sensor. But I tinker. So uh, yeah, and the the, the when, reason I ask is in that in that article they show close ups of the edges of the frame. Mm-hmm of a standard EF lens versus an RF lens. And it was rather pronounced. I think that, that's, that's got to be an extreme marketing. I mean, they're, they're, they're really just trying to like find one of the earliest EF lenses that was badly designed and finding a that's new RF lens that covers the same focal length just to show a more pronounced difference. I'm sure there is a difference, but if, if a lens on the market right now from Canon had that quality, uh, I'd be scratching my head and thinking, why is this even being sold today? I I completely agree. I completely agree. Now, we should point out a couple of things. The big interesting part to me was the chart at the end of the article. I'll get to that in a second. But don't think, you know, photography in all areas, including from an engineering point of view, is the art of compromise. Yeah, there are negatives to the design. There are negatives that they try and they try and address through coatings on the lens. And there's a couple of different ways that they do the coatings. Well, ASC. and Canon has proprietary coatings and they mention them very specifically, but so does everybody else. So does everybody else. And I, you know, the, the lens mount is a physical change that I think will have a large effect with that change. You can end up with increased flaring and ghosting. And that's what the coatings are designed to, to solve. I just, I hope that they work well on that sense. But again, getting back to that chart, you read the chart, right? Well, uh, before we get to the chart, something that's not on the page but is in the video is Canon's proclamation that their new 12-pin system is much better than their previous EF mount, which I think oh, yeah. was eight or nine pins or something. Yeah. And I'm serious, guys. Don't don't talk this up like that's a feature. That's, that's not a feature. That's not a benefit that anybody on the consumer side of things ever cares about. You could have reinvented your entire communication protocol still using like six pins and had it better than your previous one. Just because you're using 12 doesn't necessarily make that. And a they tried to point. reference autofocus being faster and things. It's like you're sending a signal if either the lens autofocuses or it doesn't. Protocol, right? Uh, It's you're starting from the ground up and you've got a new protocol. That's great. Uh, And yeah, you're still carrying some baggage because you have to have backwards compatibility with your adapters. Uh, But moving forward, it's the protocol that people care about, but it's much harder to market that. So they just talk about more pins. More pins doesn't mean anything. If all the competition only had 10 pins and Canon had 12 pins, it doesn't mean anything there either. So I just wanted to point that out uh, as well. Now, the chart that you're referencing at the the bottom of this article here on Petapixel, what it was has- your takeaway for that chart? Because I'm <laughs> curious if it matched mine. Okay, so uh, number one, and I've said this before, uh, the Sony E-mount 
I got to believe was never designed to have a full frame uh, sensor behind it. If you look at that sensor inside that mount, the corners are clipped off. So Sony's uh, kind of adapted and and they're running with it and they've got, you know, massive market share. So they're doing well. Um, but the entire article uh, talking about the RF advantage optically is that you have a shorter flange focal distance. Um Canon's is the biggest flange focal okay. distance. You did. You took it just <laughs> like I did. Because it's uh, so, two things. Uh, it's actually two parts. It's the flange focal distance and the throat diameter. That's less important, I think, although it does still play a part. But arguably, they're still not the best. In all cases, Nikon beats them in the chart. Yep. Yeah. And and so uh, the, the Leica L mount, which is used by Sigma, Leica and Panasonic, is a flange focal distance of 19 uh, millimeters. Uh, the Canon EFM mount is 18 and so is Sony. Uh, Nikon wins the race by having the shortest at 16 millimeters. But the Canon RF mount is the worst at 20 millimeters. Worst not, is a strong term. Yeah, it's I, I, the, I'm not longest. sure how much of a difference, you know, two yeah, millimeters I mean, it's, is going to make. It's one to two millimeters away from everybody. But Nikon, it's what? What is that? It's 20% longer than Nikon's flange distance. But the throat is Nikon is 55, Canon is 54. So those are almost the same. But again, you got to... You know, twenty percent longer flange distance. Again, the others still, are all look between forty six and doing with the E mount lenses at a, a throat diameter of uh, forty six point one millimeters. I mean, there's right. no question that uh, you've got some winning formulas there. And yes, having it a little bit bigger could be helpful. Um, but there is also a point of possibly over engineering, or maybe having a larger throat diameter and having a uh, you know a little bit of a uh, you know, a larger rear element could be, and I mentioned this on a previous episode, uh, the advantage of maybe in the future, your sensor is five or 10% bigger. You've got the ability to, to potentially change the sensor size uh, if you give yourself a little bit more wiggle room there. But the bottom line is the chart in the Petapixel article combined with Canon's own marketing material in the video is a great ad for the Nikon Z-mount. Yeah. Well, it's a great ad for anybody on a flapping mirror, digital SLR, to at least take a look at what the best mirrorless platform is yep. now, and not only just the Canon, because as soon as you jump from one platform to another, uh, your brand loyalty is hurt. I'm not going to say it goes away, but you're going to start looking at other manufacturers far more than you would uh, if you were just buying a new camera within the same ecosystem. Totally agree. Yep. All right, let's go on to story number three. Uh, also from Petapixel, though I've seen it elsewhere. Uh, Texas can steal your photos without paying for, quote, takings, says the court. Now, I'm a Canadian, so Canadian copyright law and U.S. copyright law are not the same. So my initial understanding, um, like we don't have this whole takings clause, uh, which I'm not sure if you read up much on that, Steve. Yeah, well, the well, I haven't read so much on the Texas takings clause. The, the, keep in mind, this is Texas court. This is Texas law. But the concept of a taking is, and it's been well publicized in the U.S., the best example is think of eminent domain. So if the government needs to widen the street, they might need to take some of the front of your yard to widen the street. And they are allowed to simply say, we need that to do this for the betterment of the community as a whole. However, they have to compensate you with adequate, reasonable, fair market compensation. Right. right. That's the whole thing. 
And what's so, interesting is the reason that that Jim Olive did this whole thing with the takings clause. Yeah, well, what's the whole court case about? Let's uh, let's kind of go back to the beginning there. Yeah, so go there. So um, there's a photo simply called the cityscape that uh, Jim Olive took. It's a great image, by the way, and he's got a lot of other similar high quality images that I'm not surprised get ripped off now and again. Uh, and it's the center of, of his uh, legal battle. So he found that um, the, the uh, city of uh, Houston skyline was being used by um, the university uh, to promote the C.T. Bauer College of Business. See, and I wasn't going to say the name of the college because they stole his image. I wasn't going to give them any mention, but it's the University of Houston's business college. Right. Uh, but the, I, my point is, if I were in Houston and I were hiring somebody, I would take a second look at uh, anybody coming from the C.T. Bauer College of Business because of their practices in this particular case. Um, so he sent them a bill for $41,000, $16,000 for the usage. And, and uh, this is key, 25000 for removing his copyright credit, which, uh, you know, I hate when people steal my work, and I kind of hate it more when I can see them removing my watermark, especially when they do so badly, and you can see cloning artifacts and everything And normally that. in U.S. copyright, that's willful infringement as soon as you remove something, yep. and that can, depending on a number of variables, like is it registered, et cetera, but that can increase the amount of damages that you can recover. Yeah, in Canada, we call that uh, rights management information. It's the same thing as the the credits at the end of a movie uh, and at the beginning and things like that. Uh, it could also include uh, the um, uh, the rights management stuff where you can't like copy a video game or a movie. They they put some software within that to prevent that too. And removing that has uh, you know stricter remedies under the Copyright Act. But uh, in this case. They had the university quickly took down the photo, uh, which I don't even think he asked for because, you know, hey, you're using it. You're going to pay for it. So keep using it. Right. Um, uh, then they only offered him twenty five hundred dollars for the unauthorized usage. Now, if I were to have a college or a university ask me to license an image, I might say that $2,500, depending on the usage, of course, uh, would be a fair rate. Uh, sometimes it wouldn't be fair. Uh, you know, if they wanted to print it on a giant billboard to promote the college uh, or the university for that matter, then I would probably demand a higher rate than that. Uh, but $2,500 is all they offered. So, uh, Jim, I'll suit them. Now, here's where things get a little bit tricky. Uh, something called sovereign immunity. And I, I reached I out. I even hate the phrase. I know. I reached out to uh, an attorney that I work with in the US, uh, Leslie Burns, to just get her feedback on this. And she's usually great to, to give me a, a couple of sound bites here. And she's she's a great lawyer as well. We have had a number of settlements within the US. Um, and uh, I'd recommend her at uh, burnstheattorney.com. Uh, but we even had one case in the past. And I'm not going to name the university, but uh, it was a United States university. Uh, and it had a sovereign immunity problem as well. We weren't able to pursue it. Uh, or if we did, we would likely get an outcome similar to this. Um, so yeah, it basically, uh, states and, and that includes state universities are currently, uh, and this is key, currently immune from copyright liability. Uh, and then she uh, continues on and says, um, all that being said, the, uh, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States will hear a case next term on sovereign immunity and copyright law. And I'm, I'm reading her directly here. Uh, she doesn't uh, remember the exact, uh, the caption for the case, but it's about North Carolina uh, using underwater film of ironically Blackbeard's wrecked 
pirate ship, uh, the Queen Anne's Revenge. Uh, and uh, they're using that without the filmmaker's permission. So that will be going a separate case to the Supreme Court about this whole sovereign immunity thing. And uh, once that gets ruled on there, that will have the trickle down effect that uh, will that one's federal like law. This. That's, That's federal a federal law, law case. Yeah. The one we're talking about with Jim Olive is a Texas state court, Texas law only case. So first of all, when you hear about this case, it does not necessarily in any way affect anything outside of Texas. But that's why he went with the unlawful taking. He was yep. trying to do an end run around sovereign immunity. It's like, okay, so you're immune to take my copyright material, but that's a taking. It's property. It's intellectual property. Yep. And uh, so- Sucks for Jim, man. Uh, I feel for everybody. I mean, my images get stole, uh, stolen left, right, and center. And, uh, you know, one of my most stolen photographs called Maple Leaf Flag, um, when I share that in a presentation, people have seen it, but they haven't seen it from me. It's so stolen that it loses its identity as, as even being mine, which completely devalues it. And I use it in my branding. It's on the back of my business card. It's in your, it's in your email signature. It's in my email signature. It's it's everywhere. So uh, I I still like to use that as, as as my branding, and it's an incredibly valuable image to me. So much so that I don't license it out to anybody. Uh, and so when people infringe upon that, I mean they, they got to pay for the damage that's being done. Not just in that case, but in any case. And so let's make this a PSA to photographers out there: um, go and see if your images are being stolen. Every image, uh, uh, every search engine has a an reverse image search. So Google Images, you can upload a photo and see where it shows up online. Same thing for Bing. Same thing for Yandex, the Russian search engine. Uh, and all of them have different algorithms, and they'll all give you different results. And register your images in whatever country you're in if they have a registration system. And if your images are likely to be stolen, the likelihood is great that they will be stolen by or in the U.S. by by an entity or within the, the bounds of U.S. law, at which point register them with the U.S. Copyright Office, regardless of where you, you are globally in the world or geographically in the world. Over the Internet, you can register your images. In fact, I did a walkthrough on, on exactly how I register my images. And I, uh, I would recommend using a service called, uh, the, the web URL is infringement.report. Report is the TLD. Uh, so infringement.report is the full URL. And uh, it's a paid for service. I think they pay $25 a month. And uh, they will scour the internet for, I think I've got up to 300 images that I can upload. So my most commonly stolen or things that I uh, imagine could be stolen, but I don't want to be searching for individually all the time. Um, the service is great. They get uh, the results of all of the different search engines and kind of compile them together for you. But, and this this is important for me, they have absolutely no interest in pursuing any of those copyright infringement cases. So that was uh, going to be my question. So a lot of other services will, uh, as part of this service that they offer, will also uh, grab the right of first refusal. So if they find something, they have the right to pursue it and they Ixie. can give up on a case, uh, but you have to use them. And if you don't, then that's uh, probably a fairly big contract dispute. And well, you're and not some going of them, to win. some of them, if you don't use them, but they are the service that discovered it, they are still entitled to a percentage of any, any recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I'm sure that's all. Even if you don't use the them print. beyond, uh, sometimes it's 50%. So you got to be very yeah. careful. And that's it. why, like I, I use uh, Image Rights International uh, because they've got a great network of lawyers, but I 
I don't have their, uh, I don't pay for their discovery service. I do not want their discovery service whatsoever because it comes with that right of first uh, refusal clause where they would then take a stab at it. And I'll be honest, um, their hit rate, uh, their success rate for closing a case with a settlement is far, far uh, lower than using a lawyer yourself. So if you're in the US, I mean, uh, Leslie Burns is a great one. Uh, Pixel IP uh, is uh, is another one that you can go to, pixelip.com. Ed Greenberg. Uh, uh, and Ed Greenberg, yeah, uh, and I've had some phone conversations with Ed. He's great. The thing is, and I've got a Canadian lawyer, Dan Pollock at uh, Dipchand LLP. But if you need recommendations for a lawyer, it means you've probably already found an infringement, and so now you just have to figure out what to do with it. And don't just sit down and let it go. You have to take some level of action. A lot of lawyer lawyers will work on contingency. So they'll take a percentage of a settlement. So you don't have to pay them to start pr- pursuing and protecting your rights here. Depending on where you're at. Uh, different countries are different. Like I, I had an infringement in Spain and the lawyer was very clear. I'm not going to take this on a contingency. If I even file the court case, you're liable for X number of of dollars. Back Back to this case. Don't think that this case is representative of a normal infringement lawsuit case. But the lower court here actually said, you know what, Jim Olive, you can proceed and you have standing to do this, this case based on the takings clause. The Court of Appeals for the First District of Texas seemed to disagree. And I found it interesting. First of all, it's Texas. This is where all the copyright lawsuits happen, by the way, uh, in, in all the tech cases like against Apple, because mm-hmm. they're very, very friendly to that type of thing. So everybody files them there. But in this particular case, an, an amicus brief was filed by NPPA, the National Press Photographers Association, along with the American Society of Media Photographers, the ASMP. They filed the brief and joined in the brief was North American Nature Photography Association, Graphic Artists Guild, American Photographic Arts, PPA, the Professional Photographers of America. Everybody chimed in on this. That's how important it was. And the ruling, the wording of the ruling was was somewhat odd to me in many, many ways, but they, they found that he couldn't use the takings claim. Well, and again, I don't want to get too much into the weeds about exactly the, the language from this case. We'll uh, bore the listeners and put people to sleep, but um, it's still an important decision. And, um, and I feel for anybody that is, uh, you know, now in Texas, and this becomes sort of like case law here. Well, where- and it's not done by the way. So it's not case law yet. I mean, it is, right. but it, 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 Olive has the right to file, uh, to be, th- this was the ones that denied his case was the court of appeals, but it was a panel of three judges. He has the right to petition for a rehearing with the entire court, not just the three. And he can also go to the Supreme court of Texas. The question is, will he based on funds and money? He has a GoFundMe campaign. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually going to put a link to that GoFundMe campaign uh, in the show notes, so that you know, if you want to reach out and you know, throw them a couple of dollars in order to uh, to fight for photographers' rights, I think that's a great thing to do. And it's interesting. This is photography. NPPA actually cited a case in this article where they said, in contrast, just two weeks ago, a federal jury found that a Houston independent school district was liable for 9.2 million for repeatedly infringing the copyright of the maker of some study guides. <laughs> so the study guides guy got 9.2 million. Mr. Olive gets a hello. 
Yeah, he gets nothing. Um, okay, well, I think we've talked this one to death, but uh, it, I do want to go back to one point that you had made about not every country having lawyers that will work on contingency. And I found that to be the case with the UK as well. Uh, I reached out to a number of lawyers and uh, every one of them said, no, we'll, you know, we'll write your you know, sternly worded letter and, and what have you, and, uh, and hopefully we can get a settlement. But they were asking for between six and 900 pounds for the ability to do that. And the amount that I would recover would probably be substantially less than that. I finally found one law firm that was willing to work on contingency. And they spelt my name wrong in the, uh, the uh, contract agreement that we were to sign three separate times three different ways, never once spelling my name correctly. So needless to say, they did not get the, uh, the representation or the, the right to represent me. So uh, <laughs> still, I've got five or six potential cases in the UK that I'm just waiting on uh, the right partner to work with. Uh, if they can spell my name, that would be a plus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, next story. I kind of like to keep a fun one for the end. Uh, Lens Baby Omni Creative Filter System brings reproducible in-camera effects, so says the title of a Petapixel article. And so Lens Baby, uh, they've announced this new Omni Creative Filter System. And it's not a filter in the traditional sense that you uh, screw something into the front of your camera. Um, it is a bunch of wands that have different edges and, uh, and opacities and colors, uh, as well as uh, you know, an, an upgrade kit that has uh, three additional different shapes and styles and what have you. And what you do is you position these on little arms on this ring so that they interact with the light before it enters the lens to bend and skew, shift, reflect, however you want to be creative with the light before it, uh, it hits the camera for in-camera artistic effects that would be you know, probably fairly difficult to do uh, organically in post-processing. But it just looks so... I mean, it's so over-engineered that if I put one of these on the front of my camera, everybody's going to be looking at me for all the wrong reasons. Like, what the heck is this guy? What is he bolted to the front of his camera? And, uh, and not even really make eye contact and just walk away from me. <laughs> what, yeah. what is your opinion of this kind of photography in general, well, Steve, and, and this product and implementation of it? So the, the ways that this is popular now, and I'm seeing it a lot, there's this, I don't want to use the word fad, but I can't think of anything else in my head. And I've already said the word fad. So of using prisms in front of your lenses. Mm -hmm. I've People seen a lot of wedding photographers when I've just been in attendance at weddings, uh, be using prisms or mirrors, holding it up kind of on the edge to you know, get a crystals, creative shot. Or spreading Vaseline on the lens. Well, that's or on an the, old on the lens too. Filter. And it's one that's had a bit of a resurgence. So there's a lot of ways that people are trying to, in camera, do special effects on their photographs. And that's great. It's not something I'm a fan of generally, as far as the style. Although, like anything, periodically I see one and go, oh, wow, that's really cool. But it's more rare than not. It's kind of like this a fisheye lens, giant, right? Say again? You know, it's kind of like a fisheye lens. It's great to have one. Uh, it's great to keep it in your camera bag, but don't keep it on your camera all the time. Don't make a por whole portfolio of yeah. work with it because you're going to make people nauseous after a while. Exactly. And this is this is not a small ring, by the way. It's a giant ring. It's available in 58 or 77 millimeter threads. It does actually screw on to your, your filter threads. Mm -hmm. But then it has a large magnetic flange that sticks out. I will say they were smart on one thing. If you're going to do this, they've got 
small little magnetic ball mounts that go right on the ring. And then they have two different length rods that connect to the ring and then stick out even farther. So you can position the crystals as far away or close as you want. It's a really clever system. It's, actually. it's a design wise. They actually did. I got to say, I mean, I haven't played with one, but they, it looks like they thought of everything, including even the crystals that they chose. They're saying the, the base kit is three ones. It's a crystal seahorse, which is flares and reflections, a scratch glass, which is like a, almost like a bathroom window type glass, which gives you, you know, stretches and streaks of light. And then one that has rainbows in it. And then in the expansion pack, you've got a crystal spear that accentuates highlights and kaleidoscope stuff, a prism, and a scalloped window for flare and, and reflection. They they thought of everything really, really well. There's one thing, by the way, in this article that really did bother me, though. And that is, and I'm sure it's pictures straight from the manufacturer. They show tons of sample pictures. I don't know which wand was used for which picture. Yeah, yeah. And that, well, I mean, I can tell the, the color uh, ones that have like rainbow effects. Yeah, those are the rainbow. What, what that one is. But the other ones you don't really have much of an idea on, um, which you're right, is frustrating. But I, I got to thinking, well, how could I use something like this? And I don't think I ever really would in a normal context. But it did uh, connect with me as a great way. If you could have a uh, a little magnetic ball that had a clamp on it so that you could hold your own objects in different orientations. Uh, this could be fun for refractography, where uh, with no lens on your camera, you just photograph the refracted bent and twisted light as it passes through a, like a spiraled wine glass or uh, some other really interesting. And I got a whole box full of this stuff. And I've done some experiments with refractography in the past. Um, it's not something I revisit often. But it is something that I have enjoyed basically sculpting with light and using the light just like um, if you can uh, if you've ever seen a swimming pool in the sun and you can see the pattern on the bottom of the pool. Right. Um, that's what happens when a very uh, columnar light source, you know, the sun um, hits a surface that causes it to bend and shift in interesting ways. And you can create a fun pattern. And if that pattern is on your camera sensor, then you can have some fun with it, making abstract artwork. I can barely call that photography, really, but it is still fun. And a system like this, if I could have a little clamp to hold my own things and those magnets were strong enough, could have a second purpose with that. I, I completely agree. And I, I should mention, I mentioned the 58 and 77 millimeters. Of course, you can always use step up or step down rings for different size lenses. But and, and let's understand that Lens Baby is a company designed to muck with light. Like all of their products uh, are designed in the line. To, to just take light that would uh, normally pass through a nice pristine set of optics and do something to mess with it. Uh, and some of them are just for wonderful creative effects. I have I a Lens Baby. There, there's one other thing that... that I don't know, maybe I'm being too harsh because to maybe it's because I wouldn't use a product like this, but the base kit with just three wands is a hundred dollars. And then the yeah. three other wands is $50. I didn't even see the price on the extra wands. The expansion bucks. pack, which is three wands Ugh. uh is is fifty bucks. And, and I know I'm their manufacturing like, hey, cost on that is around one dollar. So I just, it feels overpriced. It um, feels overpriced to me. I, I would say people might do it for a hundred bucks if you got all six wands. Yeah, That's but I mean, me. th those wands, they, they look like they're just molded plastic. They, they might be glass. I'm not sure. Yeah, but um, they've got a big magnet in them too. 
Yeah, well, yeah, you got a big magnet. You've got what looks like a little screwdriver uh, end on uh, that you can probably put into some sort of a socket. Uh, maybe some future device will make use of that. But um, it just feels... It's a lot. Uh, and the number of times you're going to use it, the number of times you're going to get an image with this, I can see as like a wedding photographer holding up something really quickly and putting it back in their pocket just to get a trick shot. But this, you have to be decided that this is what you're doing for almost every shot. And then you have to unscrew the filter thing and then put that back into your camera bag and what have you. Uh, maybe I I'm can just picture the wands getting lost. Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't even think of that. Wedding photographer pulls it out of his pocket, pulls his keys out and the wand goes on the floor and gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as I was saying, maybe we're just old, uh, get off my lawn, curmudgeonly photographers at this point. But um, I think this is for the younger generation of folks that will find this more useful. Yeah, again, I agree. Okay. Steve, uh, let's get into the picks of the week. Um, mine, I'll, I'll start first here because I see you taking a sip of something. Um, this is I'm nothing without my diet coke. <laughs> uh, I have um, I, I've been asked a number of times. Uh, I guess I'm considered an influencer with the number of followers that I have, and it's not really that many uh, to advertise certain products uh, on my Facebook or Instagram feeds, and I've always refused. But um, I also know, uh, especially because of a uh, a book that uh, Trey Ratcliffe had wrote and uh, r- written recently, that uh, it's easy to buy followers. And you can easily rack up 100,000 followers or more simply by paying a small amount of money and getting non-human accounts to follow you. And if you were to then approach a particular brand and say, hey, I'd like to be a brand ambassador to you, look at the size of my following, uh, that brand would need a tool to uh, validate exactly the kind of followers you have, whether they're legitimate or not. And um, this is called Hype Auditor, hypeauditor.com. And it's predominantly for Instagram right now. They might branch out to other things later. I have no idea. But um, I found that uh, if you want to search your own account, you can see how many followers you have that uh, it thinks are legitimate. And it does a really good job. You can pay, of course, to search uh, other accounts. And if you were going to be paying a influencer some amount of money, you'd really want to know if they were uh, valid or not. But just to dig into your own stats on Instagram, this is a really fun tool and it was free for you to do. They don't even ask for a a credit card for the, the trial here. And I think It might even be perpetually free for your own account. Um, But you can see your statistics of who's following you, where they are in the world. Uh, So like... I've got 27% of my followers are in the U.S. uh, and 12 in Canada. Um, By far, the biggest state in the U.S. is California. Um, But the biggest city is Toronto, followed by Berlin. Um, Hello to all of you Berliners out there. Uh, It's just fun to dig into these stats and see exactly uh, where your audience falls, which could be useful for your own marketing purposes as well. Um, For reference, my score is 95 out of 100, which they rate as excellent, uh, which is a metric of so many different factors all put together uh, to create um, your numbers. And they spell it out all with uh, extreme transparency here. So I, I quite like it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, So check that out. Anybody that wants to see how they are faring on Instagram or to spy on other people and see if they are as legitimate as they say they are. Uh, Steve, what do you got for me? So my pick of the week is photography related and yet in kind of a different way. For the longest time on my podcast, I used a webcam and I've never really used the one built into the computer. I bought a really nice Logitech C920 
very, very common webcam. It's a very wide angle webcam. And the picture's good for a webcam. They never get the white balance right. They never do a lot of things right. I'm using the the Logitech 930 right now, which I think is even wider. It's even wider. Every time I fire it up, I have to go into the special controls and manually adjust the exposure down because it never gets that right. The white balance and color sometimes are completely off for no reason. Which kind of is a side pick, actually. If you are using like a Logitech C920 or C930, if you're on a Mac, go to the App Store and download something called Webcam Settings, and it will let you adjust contrast and sharpness and white balance and brightness and exposure and and a bunch of others, gain, a whole bunch of other things. Uh, It'll let you zoom in. It's a great piece of software. And that's what I used for the longest time. And everybody told me that, oh, you really need to upgrade and start using a better camera for your webcam. But I was never going to try and figure out how to connect my DSLR to my computer. First of all, I take it out to shoot shows. And I, just to me, in my head, it was going to be something complex and kind of a pain and not worth it. But then somebody lent me an older version of the device that's my pick today, which I'm not saying yet on purpose. And when I plugged it in and I hooked up my Canon 5D4 to my Mac, it was it, it, the, the phrase aha moment doesn't cover it. It was an, oh my, I, it was one of those moments. And I ordered an Elgato CamLink 4K that day. Now, the one I had tested was not the 4K version. And oddly, it was the older version. And oddly, it's actually way more money. It's like 160 bucks. Hmm. The the Elgato CamLink 4K, which does 4K at 30 frames a second, does 1080p at 60 frames a second, it's $120 at Amazon or B&H. It's a little bit more if you do a Best Buy or something like that. But this thing just instantly let me use my Canon 5D Mark IV, which with Don right now is what I'm using. And if you watch any of the, the last three or four months of the, the podcast that I do, that's what I'm using. And you'll see I've suddenly got you know some blur in the background. And I'm using a 24 to 70 Mark II Canon. Uh, 2.8 L. I'm running it like f4.5. Instantly, my white balance was right. Instantly, everything and and I could easily dial the white balance in to match my lights. Now there was one issue that you should think about if you're going to do this. If you're going to use a DSLR as your webcam, well, you don't want your battery to die in the middle of the feed. Right. So I bought an AC kit. And one other thing, and I'd always seen this piece, but just set it aside in the box. And thank gosh, I really had saved it. You use, basically what the cam link does is it's a USB connection to your computer. And the other side of it is an HDMI connection. And you need to buy an HDMI to mini HDMI or whatever your camera is to connect the camera. The weight of that cable can mess up the plug in the side of your camera. Ah, and they've got that little dongle thing that uh, uh, makes it so that, well, that doesn't happen, right? It's a support. And I never thought about it until I was browsing around and saw uh, somebody using one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's in the box. I went and grabbed it out of the box. It's a support. When I need to use my camera, like to go photograph Santana tonight, I remove the battery. I unplug that. They sit there hanging on my gooseneck that the camera mounts on with a tripod with a monopod head. And I take the camera away and I'm done. And it's it's fantastic. 
Awesome. That is a, a great pick and uh, some nice side picks in there to find usefulness in other ways. I wish I was uh, able to use the um, webcam software uh, that you suggested, but on, on Windows, I have no such luck. If anybody listening knows of something that's better for Windows to uh, control the Logitech software. the Logitech software, please let me know. Um, but as things are right now, eh, it's just been working. And eventually, I'll probably buy exactly what you have, Steve, um, and uh, use like even uh, an older retired camera and have it permanently fixed as a webcam, I think would be a great use of it. So I don't have to keep moving things around or worrying well, about what settings. We both know people that are using their Panasonics for that. I mean, oh, exactly, GH4 yeah. works great. GH5 works great. Yeah, so I could probably even pick a used one up for, uh, I mean, not nothing, but uh, you know, I don't care how many uh, shutter actuations it has. I, I don't care how beaten it up it, uh, it is. It's going to be a webcam from that point forward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Steve, how can people get in touch with you and uh, and your podcast? Who have you had on recently? Well, just the day that we're recording this, I just released an episode. It's it's funny that you mentioned Trey Ratcliffe's book. I've always I've had Trey Ratcliffe on before, but I've always wanted to get him on to talk about his Burning Man images because I've never been to Burning Man, and to me, and again, I could be completely wrong, but my complete accurate image of Burning Man is based on Trey Ratcliffe's Burning Man gallery. Because it's just that amazing. Right. So we picked a Burning Man image, and the episode just went live the day that you and I are recording this. And we do one of his Burning Man images, and we're doing a contest with Trey Ratcliffe. He did a an influencer, Instagram influencer class with a young lady in, uh, I think she's in Australia. And he's letting me give away one of his classes. So if you watch the episode or if you go to the blog post, it tells you all about what you need to do to enter. And it's really, really easy. But the podcast is at BehindTheShot.tv. The podcast on social media is Twitter or Instagram. It's BehindTheShotTV. It's BehindTheShot podcast on Facebook. Don't even ask. And then for (laughs) me, it's Steve Brazel on Twitter or Instagram and Steve Brazel Photography on Facebook. And uh, yeah, it's a great episode with Trey. Well, we'll have all of the links to that in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, I just had, all- by the way, I think he's a mutual friend of ours. Do you know Scott Bourne? Uh, yeah, I do. I've never actually talked to him in person, though. I just had Scott Bourne on. I had Rick Salmon on. Um, yeah, just having some good people lately. You know, uh, Scott would be a fun guy to talk to about copyright because I know he gets pretty litigious with his work, as he should. Uh, when people uh, infringe upon your rights, you should defend it. And I know that he's uh, he's got some war stories to say uh, about that type of stuff. I, I would love to have a personal discussion with him about uh, some of those adventures in, uh, in copyright enforcement. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, uh, we should wrap up this episode. We're just past the hour mark. But Steve, thank you so much for being on. Uh, it's great to have a conversation with you anytime and uh, uh, have fun shooting Santana tonight. I definitely will. Thank you very much, as always, for having me. This is one of the highlights of any week that I'm on. All right. Now it's time to get out and shoot. Shoot. 